Hi, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast Season 3, and I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is a podcast dedicated to all things food, from culinary sleuthing to recipe ideas and interviews with people who are passionate about food and delicious adventures. So join me here on Fridays to explore the world through the lens of food, and together we can share some laughs, conversation, and I welcome you at my table always. So if you're ready, let's jump into our next food adventure together right now. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast, season three, what? And I'm your host, Beth Fuller. I can't believe it's season three. If you're new, if you're new to the podcast, welcome, welcome. You have a lot of catching up to do. No, no pressure, no pressure. You've been here through all the seasons. Well, I love you and thank you for listening to me every week chattering away. And you know what I'm going to say, don't take notes. I've taken all of your notes, so head on over to my website for everything, elizabethrfuller.com. And while you're there, take in that amazing food, product, and lifestyle photography. It's what I do for a living. So if you need photos, I'm your gal. Hit me up. If you've got questions for the podcast, if you want to be on the podcast, if you need culinary sleuthing of any 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 kind i'm your gal send me an email let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com and of course tag me in all of your food adventures on instagram at let's go on a food adventure all right you guys let's do this let's go on a food adventure hello oh hello hello how's it going i'm here with you. So life is good. Um, thanks for all of your listens for the last episode. Greatly appreciate it. We have a very fun one on deck today. Before we get started, just I'm recording on Marathon Monday. So even though you'll listen to this later in the week, happy Marathon Monday to everyone. It's a huge, huge, huge deal here in Boston, in the Boston area. And this marks the 10 year anniversary of the unfortunate uh, marathon bombings. And if you were here at that time, if you were affected by it, uh, my heart goes out to you. It was a horrific, horrific just attack on such a beautiful and lovely and celebrated event um, that's been going on here for, I think, like something like 127 years. I think that's this, this year is 127th. I could be wrong. But, um, it's just this one's a very special one so I mean they're all special but you know anyway I mean if you were here and you like myself you um I worked in the city at the time and I can tell you exactly where I was when it happened I can tell you exactly where I was for the week before they caught them um and then exactly what happened for the week after that because I was a part of planning and executing Sean Collier's memorial service. So it was a, um, yeah, it was just a really, it was a tough time being here, but, um, that's not why we're talking today. Today we're talking about other things. So, uh, we had a little, I love Lucy moment in our house this week, last week. Um, uh, <laughs> Oh, God. So uh, 
we have two like outdoor spigots that like go to hoses, right? Like one goes to our front irrigation system and one is like a hose on our the side of our house next to our garage. And we usually when it gets so cold here in the winter, you got to kind of blow out the water from the irrigation system so the the pipes don't freeze down there and then like you shut off the water outside. What we thought we did and we've lived in this house now for five years. It's uh, over 100 years old. So some of the stuff in the basement uh, is not labeled and is a little uh, Mickey Mouse, dare we say, where it's just like pipes go to nowhere. There's water on off levers. You don't really know what goes to what. You just kind of follow the pipe up and hope for the best kind of vibe. And um, <laughs> so... I'm trying to get back into um, a healthy routine in my life. And I last Monday was like, I'm going to go to the gym. It's Monday morning. I'm going to the gym. This is going to be great. <laughs> I left Todd a little note like, love you. Have a great day at work. Oh, P.S. Can you turn the water on? Because all of last week, it was summer here. It was like in the 80s and 90s here last week. Um, un very unseasonably warm. But I was like... I want to water some of the spring flowers and like some other stuff. So, and anyway, I come home from the gym at the exact moment that the I Love Lucy moment happened. And I open the side door and Todd is like running up the basement stairs and he's like perfect timing. And I was like, oh, thinking like, oh, he's going to say goodbye. Oh, he's like on his way out the door. Oh, okay. Like, love you. Bye. Kind of vibe. And I turn the corner into the kitchen and it's literally raining water from <laughs> from the ceiling in the kitchen through all of the light fixtures. There's speakers in our ceiling. We have tons of recessed lighting in the ceiling. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, he had turned the water off, but it was still pouring down. And he was like, I don't know what happened. Like, I just, I thought that we winterized that outdoor faucet. And like, we, we, we didn't because this pipe where I thought it went outside, I don't know where what it went. Like, he just, we, we accidentally chose wrong um, for the pipes in the basement. And now there's a huge hole in the... So then, okay, so then it was like a matter of, okay, a race against time to dry the ceiling because, you know, mold. And um, also, we don't know what's up there. So, like, if you open your ceiling and there's insulation, well, then that's wet. And, like, holy shit, that's a whole nother level of what the fuck. And um, so we, you know, talked to multiple contractors throughout the week had I had them he Todd helped find them um I kind of gave him the lay of the land here and felt out like who was the better fit for us and this last guy comes in his name was Walter <laughs> this is like the eighth guy who's come in the house at this point and he just looks at me and like some guys were like bro I'm not fucking touching this like you kidding me like the amount of recess lighting you have in oh no I'm not touching this like this is a nightmare I was like thanks for your vote of confidence and yes we can go through the homeowner's insurance for this but here's the thing 
here's the thing with homeowners insurance. And if anyone's out there part of the homeowners insurance, like, I just, I don't understand, like, it's it's mind-blowing. You cannot. So you can file the claim and you pay your deductible, right? And then if you have another claim within three years of this first claim, you are SOL and you can and most likely will lose your homeowner's insurance is what our insurance company told us. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. They're like, no. So figure out if this is worth making the claim or if this is something you can pay out of pocket and fix yourself. And I was like, why am I paying? homeowner's insurance like why have we been paying it for five years like can we go back and use one of the claims that we didn't use from the last five years like what the fuck so anyway this guy walter comes in he's like man i think it looks that bad i was like really he's like no you just gotta dry it you gotta dry it we gotta get a saw up there and just cut your ceiling open and dry it with a fan and i was like you have to do what? And he's like, well, I, listen, I got to go, but I got a, a, <laughs> a saw in my truck. Hold on. Comes in with a drop cloth and a saw, just climbs up on the ladder that I had right there and starts sawing away. Saws a huge hole in the ceiling and then looks at me and goes, I don't know. I'll be, once it dries, just let me know and I'll come back and I'll fix it. Well, send a guy to come back and fix it. I was like, you just cut a hole in my ceiling like this literally just happened like it's I have to make dinner like and this is happening right now I I just I can't even I can't even so anyway um that was last week and now this week is a whole new week we're having a little redo week last week was a little challenging here in my in our world and so this week it's gonna be a better week it's gonna be a good week um which is why we are doing this podcast with such a wonderful human to kick off this amazing week so let's get into it all right there's the fun music people so my guest this week she is such a lovely human she's a wonderful human she brings so much joy and life and light to any set because she's a prop stylist Mm -hmm. yeah so if you've ever wanted to know what goes into those spectacular photo shoots where there are a ton of props or maybe it's a minimalist style shoot where there's not a ton of props but each one is very meaningful and placed in a very artful way well she's your gal so she has worked for large companies small companies film tv commercials she's worked for companies like stonewall kitchen truly sam adams bj's many many magazines really the list goes on and on so please please welcome to the podcast suzanne lee from bostonpropstyles.com Hi, Suzanne. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh my God, thanks for coming on the pod. I am fantastic. It's fucking freezing out. Um, I want it to be warm. I'm like, I keep like dreaming. I'm trying to manifest some hot, sunny days because this is bullshit. I'm so sick of this. Like the weather's like dipping its little toe into being wicked nice in the sunshine. And then the second you get in the shade, it's like, oh my God, I need 15 layers on. Like, it's true. New England springtime is the worst. 
It is it, because you know what it is? It's not even that like it's rainy, it's muddy, it's whatever. Like that's fine. I can't figure out how to dress. Yes. Like, Ever yesterday I went to walk my dog and she was so ready to go. We're literally at the door. I put my hand on the knob and I go, wait, I haven't looked at the temperature. And I pulled up my app and I turned around and she was like, what are we doing? Uh-huh. Totally. Ditto. Same. And like, it's then I'm either dressed too hot and then I'm like spitzing like a putting in a picnic <laughs> or however the saying goes as I'm walking him. <laughs> that one. Right. And then it's either that or I go outside and I'm like, oh my God, it's like freezing and this is now tor- like it's just we'll get there we're so close we're so close we were so at least it's sunnier a little later and all that good stuff but so now for the listeners who don't know and you kind of gave it away you my friend are from new england you are my new england gal ride or die yes tried and true tell everyone where you are where you grew up okay. it's from where you are now it sure isn't so <laughs> Right now, I live in Amesbury, Massachusetts, and I grew up just across the river in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and if you had asked me 20 years ago if I would be living here as an adult, I definitely would have said no, Um, but I love being here. I definitely see why my parents chose this area. Um, I've lived here since I was just under a year old, so it definitely feels like home to me. But I did have a nice stint down in Charleston, South Carolina for almost nine years. Wow. So it does make the springtime and the winter up here even more painful for me. Yeah, I hear you. I was in Southern California for about the same amount of time in my 20s. feel the same way. Um, They're just so lovely. The for people who don't know Newburyport, well, one Newburyport and Amesbury, they're literally like right next to each other to the point where like on Thanksgiving Day, high school rival <laughs> football, it's a big deal. Like to like you guys are rivals in high yes. school football. Like if anyone cares about that kind of stuff, and here in New England, um, you know that's what you used to do on Turkey Day when you were in high school. You'd go to the high school football game in the morning and. Uh, then go back home and might be a little tipsy, might be a little stoned, might be a little <laughs> bit of both and just dive into turkey time. Like that was spot on with that. Yeah. 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 And for people who also don't know, Newburyport is one of the cutest, cutest quintessential New England waterfront yes. as like this downtown area with lots of shops and restaurants and super walkable. I mean, it's tiny, but like. It's yeah. one of, it's a very desirable, uh, I like New England idyllic place to call home. And yeah. it is expensive as fuck. It sure is. Yep. A lot of people that grew up there can't live there right now. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it was always super expensive. I think in just the last probably 20 or 30 years, it's become way more um expense I could be wrong with that but it seems like it's as obviously housing prices go up it's always been a desirable place to live but I don't think it's nearly as expensive as it is now definitely more expensive now I think it was still considered a really nice area when I was growing up and um the city in general went over it under a huge uh rejuvenation in the 70s Mm -hmm. so I think prior to that 
maybe less so than now, but yeah, it's an amazing spot. Um, I spent the first half of my childhood living in, maybe we can call it Newburyport proper. And Mm -hmm. then from middle school through college, I lived on Plum Island, which is kind of its own special place. My husband's first restaurant job was on Plum Island at some steamery, (laughs) Plum Island steamers, Plum Island. It's going to kill me. Plum Island something. It is Plum Island. It's so funny. Uh, Plum Island in is one of those towns that when there is a nasty storm that comes through <laughs> on the yeah. news, they always reference Plum Island because it's got so much erosion problems. It's so cute and so sweet, but it's like it's one sad. storm away from just going away. Oh, uh, I can't even think about it. It makes my heart hurt. There are literally homes that have fallen yeah. into the dunes, into the ocean. It's kind of an interesting spot. Um, just a little fun fact for you. Mm. Plum Island is actually made up of four different towns. There's only Nuh-uh. two of which are residential, Newbury and Newburyport. And it's one of the only areas in the country where you have to leave one town to then get back into the other part of the town. So when you're on your way to Plum Island, you are in Newburyport. When you arrive on the island, you're in Newbury. And then to get back to Newburyport, you just have to drive down a few blocks and you'll be back in Newburyport. I had no idea. So I always thought Plum Island was the little piece of land. I almost said property. The little piece of land that like you drove out to where like the beaches were. Yeah, it's a barrier island. So again, being in that area, a bazillion antique stores. Like it's like the beginning of, I, I mean, I also think that whole North shore corridor from like Ipswich, Essex. And then you have the treasure trove that is Todd farm. And like, you didn't say it. I was going to say it. Exactly. And like all of that is like really, and some of it's wicked expensive, like high end antique Mecca, but like antique Mecca. So tell me, how did you get started in prop styling? Yes. It's a long winding story. I'll try to make it shorter for you. <laughs> no, please. Um, Wind the story away. begins uh, close to 10 years ago in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I had applied to graduate school, which was going to be back up here. I deferred for a year. Really, As one does. As one does. Like, yeah. you know, I did all this work to get in. Why don't I just push it off a little longer? Um, yeah, I was down there working at a Montessori school, part-time working at a restaurant deep in this relationship that I didn't want to leave, which is part of why I deferred. And I just started, well, I'd been thrifting for years. I grew up going to all the places you just mentioned with my dad. Um, and I have a slight hoarder mentality, which I've really learned to reel in after becoming a prop stylist, because (laughs) You just have to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was thrifting a lot down south and it is a little bit different than up here. I think there is way more to be found. And it, at least at that time, the prices were cheaper than thrifting up here even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started selling vintage kitchenware and different little oddities on Instagram. And this is like very early days of Instagram. 
um, where you could comment on a photo with your zip code and email address, like saying that you wanted to buy the item, then I would follow up with what shipping would be. And we'd say yes, no. And then I'd ship the stuff out. Um, it was very exciting at the time. I thought I was, you know, yeah, entrepreneur really, it was a hobby business, but, um, but that would take up a ton of time between like taking the pictures and then monitoring Instagram obsessively. Oh my God. It definitely did. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why it's definitely a hobby. <laughs> it's not a real way to make money, but yeah. it led me to where I am now, which I'm very thankful for. So like you just said, you are taking photos of the product and I really had no idea that what I was doing was a job that anybody did. Um, so I just wanted to sell these things and I'd be arranging them in different ways and trying to make them look cute so that they'd sell. And they did. So um, I deferred school, but then I ended up deciding like a couple months before, like, I really don't want to go to this program. I really wanted to do something creative. I had no idea what that would be. Yeah, what was the grad school program you were supposed to go into? I hope <laughs> I hope it's good. I hope it's like nuclear science. Please lay lay it on me. No, no, not not that far. No, it was for behavior analysis. Oh, but still like sciency, heavy, With, like yeah, yeah, like definitely would have taken me on a much different path in life. Um, you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes and no, you probably use some of those skills on set to be quite honest with you. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where was I? Um, okay. I so we were in South Carolina. Set. Yeah. You de- yeah. You're like, fuck this. I'm not going to school. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So, um, I wanted to do something creative. Didn't know what that was at that point. Oh, mm. Okay, let's backtrack for a second. Yeah, let's go. Oh, yeah, let's roll the train back. Yeah, please. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm still in Charleston. Mm. I have decided I'm not going to school, but I hadn't moved back to Massachusetts yet. So in that little blip of time, I decided that I wanted to take my online sales into the real world. And I messaged a local farmer's market and asked if I could have a little pop-up there. And they were kind of like, well we sell food and you want to sell stuff. So I, that food can go on. I mean, yeah, this is yeah, like, yeah. I mean, come on people. Well, I kind of pitched it in that way. I'm like, well, yeah. it is kitchenware. And I went at it from a sustainability standpoint, Perfect. like, you know, this is vintage. Let's reuse things. Let's, you know, yeah. consumerism. And they were all about that. So I got to set up spot. I don't remember how many weeks I did it for, but on the first day, someone came by and said, Hey, can you tell me about what you're doing today? I gave a little spiel and showed them everything. And they're like, okay, well, I'm actually a producer for a film (sighs) happening. And, um, we really love your setup. We're doing a farmer's market and like craft type scene. And we'd love for you to bring this exact setup, whatever you don't sell today. Um, to the movie set next week. And I was like, wow, what? And you know, I had absolutely no concept of what that world was like. Like what you should charge or like, cause I mean, that's like dollar signs are like going off in my head. Like, holy shit. I think he was like, we'll give you like $200. And at the time I was like, wow, yes, yes, yes. And I mean, maybe that's great. I don't know. 
it was for me it was a big deal it, it was, was a big deal yeah in retrospect for anyone who wants to get into this movie budgets have a lot of money to throw at these things versus other types of sets and budgets and yeah. um $200 would be a like you can definitely pitch for more um, in the yes. future yes as you Absolutely. know but anyway I had no idea yeah um and I wish I could remember the name of the movie because it was some sort of like Hallmark type weird love story. Oh, I can't. So I could look that up. Maybe we can add it to the notes later if I find right. it. Hilarious. Um, And it was really validating because the person that I was dating at the time, he was not really supportive at all of this little side thing I'd been doing. Um. Shocker, I left him a couple weeks later. Hell yeah. <laughs> Not because See of you that. later, buddy. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I'm like, okay, well, I guess this thing I'm doing isn't that stupid after all. And it made me realize maybe I have an eye for displays at the very least. So nothing really came of that besides that I was in the background of the movie. Then I moved back to Massachusetts and was in this weird lull. And my very best friend from college named Haley was Shout working out to Haley. For- we love you, Haley. Oh, Haley. Um, she was working for a food publication in Charleston, which you may or may not have heard of called the local palette. I'm pretty sure they still exist. Yeah. And she was doing a bunch of photo shoots there. She was working as an editor and she's like, Hey, did you know there is something called prop styling and you've literally been doing it for like a couple of years at this point. And I think you should try to pursue it. I'm like, well, how would I even do that? She's like, I mean, I don't know. It's really kind of hard, but network, you know, meet as many people as you can. And she's like, and definitely don't even think twice about getting a job at a cute boutique somewhere and working on visual displays. I'm like, oh, okay. And that's kind of what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Once I knew what it was, I went bonkers, like doing everything I could (laughs) to meet people, have coffee with people, I had phone calls. Like it was, I was all in and I feel so fortunate that it kind of snowballed very quickly. Yeah. And so I'm in my, I think eighth, I think this is actually maybe my ninth year. Woohoo! Eight years under the belt type of thing. Um, and it's been amazing. Oh, that's amazing. So for those of you who don't know, we fell in love because prop yeah. stylists and photographers work hand in hand on sets. And for people who don't know what prop styling is, could you explain to them what exactly a prop stylist does and what you who you are? on set? Yes, I sure can. So if you think about any time that you see an advertisement, a lot of people just think the photographer's done it all. And often case, and oftentimes that is the case. That can happen. We don't want to though. We want, we want to collaborate. Similarly, I don't want to take the photos, which I've done in the past. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the final product is so much better when you have an actual team working yes. on what you know, each person is best at. So my job would be to set everything up that's going to be photographed. And a lot goes into that leading up to a shoot day. 
sometimes I think people think a prop stylist is just like a glorified shopper. Oh, yeah. Tends to bother me. There is a lot of shopping involved. I'm not going to lie. I'm always shopping and I have a huge prop collection. So that says something. Um, it's all of us though. Like it's such a slippery slope. And the thing is though, from shoot to shoot, props vary so much, like yeah. so much that sometimes you really can't, pull, I mean, you want to pull from your own collection, but like, it's, it's so nice to get something new that inspires you. Then you, then it will bounce off of some of the, the stuff in your collection. I just love new stuff too. I'm 100%. Just, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Um, and I learned after years of thinking that I needed to own all the things that, you know, depending on the project and what the needs are, the client is going to pay for that stuff. That's why prop budgets exist. Um, but yeah, my job is basically, you know, a client's going to say, this is the look we're going for. And then I bring it to life. And it's really fun because depending on what brand I'm working with, those looks can vary like hugely. Um, so I have a bunch of different stuff I can pull from in my collection. Then I go out finding things that are really specific to what we're doing. Um, so there is that sort of curating and sourcing component to being a prop stylist, but the real benefit comes on shoot day where I'm putting everything together in a way that someone else might not. I kind of know based on the dimensions of what we're shooting, exactly where to place things. And it makes things go faster. And hopefully the goal is that it looks better at the end. It always does. Like watching a prop stylist work and like how you pull, like I've seen it happen so many times, how you all pull and start creating these like beautiful little vignettes on a table to then drill down further and then trying things on set and then I'm snapping some photos and it's the, it's the most beautiful bubbly collaborating experience. Uh-huh. And it looks like you just said, it looks so much better, but the big thing that people need to understand is that there's a prop stylist. And then there's a lot of times a food stylist. And unfortunately, right. sometimes those worlds blend because of budget re- restrictions and, and other things. But what's the big difference if you want to talk about it for a second, between being a food stylist and a prop stylist. Yes. Um, The hybrid role definitely happens and has been happening more often, I think, in the industry lately. I will sometimes do that hybrid role, um, but I never market myself as a food stylist because I do think there's a huge difference. And I think that the roles should remain separate and we should all get the work and have as many people on the team as you can. A food stylist truly would have a culinary background or if it's not, you know, an actual program that they went to, they just have a lot of experience and a lot of food knowledge. Um, I have worked with food throughout my career. I feel like I'm in a pretty good place with that, but I wouldn't take on a job that involves cooking meat, say. Mm -hmm. Um, there are definitely certain things I would and wouldn't do. And I'm very honest with clients about that. Um, I do what I call light food styling. Um, but yeah, food stylist has a lot of food knowledge and they know how to make food look a certain way for photographs, which is completely different than what you want to do if you're giving someone food to eat. Oh yeah. 
Oh, night, night and day. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes, like meat is not even cooked all the way because mm. you want to keep it plump. There's pins in things. I mean, never, ever, ever eat food on a photo set unless you've asked someone. Oh, oh my God. It's like the, the cardinal sin of all sins. Like, don't even, I've said this on other episodes, like, do not come to set hungry. Don't eat and like have snacks with you because I will tell you, you are not going to snack on anything on that set. And for, you might not period, like there's a pretty good chance we might, we'll eat eventually. And sometimes it is food from set as it's dying basically. Yeah. yeah. But like yeah. from like a sustainability standpoint, but uh, I mean, and also you don't really want to eat the food on the set once it's well, been on. That's kind of where I was coming from. Like you actually don't know what the food stylist has done to that. So no. don't go picking around. But then I think maybe more what you were saying is like, you don't touch anything until you've got the shot. Because even if there's three extra bags of pretzels, yeah. I don't know if pretzels popped in my head, but uh, I love pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> just I just ate some with if you've never had the buffalo ranch hummus from Ithaca but it uh, is like the most and I literally just ate some pretzel chips with it so it's um it's top of mind oh, right now for me as well funny I don't even like pretzels and they popped in my head the exception there would be peanut butter filled pretzels I'll eat those all day all day long. um Anyway, if you have three extra bags of pretzels, that doesn't mean you can go ahead and start munching on those no. while you're hungry on the side of set because you just need to wait and you got to pick through those bags and find the prettiest unbroken pretzel pieces. There's a lot that goes into it. I love food stylists. I love when I get to be a food stylist on certain days. But again, I think the roles are very separate. Very separate. Yeah. Yeah. And there is nothing nicer than working on set with a food stylist where I'm really focusing. And and this is what I think some people don't always understand. I, my umbrella title is photo stylist. And under that, there's a, you know, a lot of different roles. Props is definitely one of them, but usually on set when there are, you know, distinct roles, photographer, prop stylist, food stylist, I'm on set the majority of the time, really working closely with the photographer for the overall look of the photo mm -hmm. placement and everything like that, where the food stylist is really, really focused on the food. They're in the kitchen, they bring stuff over to me. And then I'm the one that's really like deciding where it goes. Yeah. The set. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, a, yeah, your role is almost a liaison between like me as the photographer, the food stylist, and also the vision of the art director as well. Like definitely it's, it, it, and when we have the right group of people together, it's just, it makes all of our jobs. I wouldn't say easier, but so much less stressful in a sense of we can drill down on the, it, cause problems and issues come up constantly as we're rolling through the shot list. Yeah. And like when you're flustered and you're doing three other roles on top of your role, it makes it harder to problem solve and troubleshoot when like if your head was clear and you were like be being able to just drill down on what you need to focus on, it makes it just flows so much better. And we can move through the shot list usually, I mean, knock yeah. on wood, well, you know, and with a little more ease, I think, than if we're... uh stretched and oh, some shoots are, are stretched and you bootstrap it and 
we just try our best. And those yeah. are the ones that we drink and talk about after the shoot and go, holy shit, never again. Um, for those of you who have never worked on set with a stylist, I would love to hear from you some of the do's and don'ts of, as we just talked about with the pretzels, like you don't touch the food. Now, when it comes to props, what are some do like do's and don'ts when you do work with a stylist that if you've never worked with one, people should know about? Oh, that is such a good question. So I can definitely give good answers for this, I hope. But in general, I will say that I'm a pretty laid back prop stylist. Um, there are rules and etiquette on set. And I try to be pretty chill about that. There are some things that really get to me. Mm -hmm. um, in general, if you're working with a prop stylist, you have to understand that they're there for a reason. Um, we are hired for our expertise, for our eye. And I think once you're on set, you have to really lean into that and trust the person that you've hired to do that. Um, and there are a lot of different stages of a shoot. As you mentioned, you know, you could be taking a bunch of test shots before the final image is there. For me, I'm going to be moving things around, doing my own process before I land on final placement. And it tends to bother me when I have things in one area. I know that that's not where I'm going to leave them for the final photo. It could even be like I'm bringing things over from my prop stash and putting them on set and someone will start chiming in about how it doesn't look right. Or like, yeah. oh, are you sure you want to put that there? I'm like, oh, we're I, not there yet. We're not I, fucking I there promise, yet. Like, I promise I did not think that that mug should sit on top of that plate. Like, I literally just put it down. And yeah. I'll be right back. And I'm still working on it. So maybe just give the prop stylist a little bit of time to ease into it. You know, get to a place that they want comments on. And then at that point... My job is to be completely open to whatever feedback, critique, I can handle it. I do not take it personally. And at the end of the day, it's whatever the client wants. So if I think something looks better one way, we can talk through it. But, and I, I do like to give my opinion, like, this is why I did this. And then I'm always open to switching it and saying, but yeah, we can show you what that looks like. And then wherever we land is where the client wants it. Yeah. So that'd be number one. Give us a, a little bit of time. Also, if I really am not huge on this, depending on the photographer and how many times we've worked together. Um, but in general, there's kind of this like unspoken or maybe now we're speaking it rule that nobody touches anything on set besides the stylist. Even hundred percent, hundred without question, hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like an old school rule. But in general, I would stick to that. Um, I spend a lot of time placing things, and it could be down to like millimeters. Yeah, seriously, like where the fork is in a position that it's not going to be tangential to the plate. I think about all of this stuff. And then if someone comes in and nudges something, it changes everything, everything, 
everything. If you're on like a super tight food shot. Those things matter a lot compared to like a big lifestyle shot where, you know, you can barely even see the plate. It's on a coffee table. There are models, whatever. It depends what's going on. But my, you know, background is on in tabletop styling. So for people that don't know what that is, it's just like literally something that can be styled on a tabletop. It's small scale. It could be like really, really detail oriented. So you kind of have to communicate with the stylist if you want something moved. And then it's my job to go in and nudge it. hundred percent. Like I've 100%. literally gone and like washed my hands really quickly, jumped back and I'll be like, did somebody move that? You just say, can you go back? Can you go back up one? Okay. <laughs> that's where we were. And now this is where we are. Uh-huh. What the, was there an earthquake? Like what, what just happened? Yes. That, made that entire time. teacup move across that. Like, yeah. And again, like if that's where we land and it looks better and you know, more eyes are always better because there are a lot of creative brains on a photo set. Yeah. So that's cool if that's where it ends up, but the protocol would be that I'm the one that moves that. 120%. Yeah. Um, another thing is, oh God, I don't know why I really love linens. Like I'm a super weirdo. I just, I love them. I have so many of them. They're all color coordinated in drawers. I love and covet them. And And they're expensive linen, linen, napkins, linens in general, like really nice ones. A linen napkin can run you almost a hundred dollars in some well, probably a hundred dollars no, for not two. Buying those, Beth. <laughs> What's that company? It's like Caravan or Car. You know what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Those tea towels, yeah. I think, are like seventy five for two. So wild. Yeah. They're so nice, though. They're That's nice and heavy. Nice pieces, and like, it's taken me time to collect these over the years, and often, like, that's out of my own pocket. It's not from a client's budget whatever. It's not about money. I just love them. And there's a big difference between a prop linen and like a tea towel dish rag on set. Mm -hmm. And I've had to talk to people about that um, quite a few times. That clean up a mess with your linen? Maybe like not full-blown wiping a spill, but like wiping their hands or like grabbing them out of the stack I've made. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, um, that's such a no, cause you don't wash those. Like you really don't want to put them in a washing machine. Like, so oh. I've definitely in the last couple of years and you know, I probably should have been doing this from the beginning, but it's all process. I now bring like a big stack of tea towels with me. Mm-hmm. Anyone needs something like these are for using these are props yeah and yeah it has seemed to oh, help that's i know important. people right i don't oh, know oh. I'm not particular about my linens but I, it's a sad day when that happens in my world they'll be ru- some i mean that can just ruin a really and especially if it's something that's antique or that's beyond vintage like ugh. yeah oh my heart breaks yeah so mm. I think those would be like the big days. ones. Yeah, yeah. It's, I agree with you. It's like, there's this level of communication that the photographer, the stylist, and then the art director 
for the brand or the client or whomever needs to somehow have, and we all, when we're all tuned in together and we're not asking each other, like, I mean, I get it. Like we're there. My lighting's not perfect yet. The camera angle's not perfect yet. Something right. And I'm making the thing, I guess, and I'm talking in circles that people need to understand, especially with tight tabletop photography. It's the, it's the, the entire shoot is made up of the teeniest, tiniest little movements over and over and over again until we all get it right. And it can take an hour. It can take six hours. It can take, I mean, I shot a Banoffee pie last week with a food stylist and a whole team of people. And it was no one's fault. That fucking pie, it took three and a half hours and like eight pies to get through. And even then wow. it still was like struggle yeah. bus city. It's just one of those things that sometimes the food's not working sometimes. And you got to tear it all down and build it all up again and yeah, hope for the best. But there is, there is some unspoken word a truth or just like, we all need to have our spidey senses when we're there of being like, I know you're not done yet, but we all need to have like a green flag and be like, okay, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. What do you <laughs> think? You know what I mean? Because yeah. like, a lot of times we're not there yet. And I'm taking a few shots as you're moving things around. And then we look in the, the monitor and we're like, okay, not yet. But then somebody will chime in and be like, oh no, can you move the spoon there? And you're like, well, I'm working on it. I saw it too. Yeah. I mean, to I there. think I think best case scenario is that you're in a studio that has a separate client space, which works really well for the client. They can be on calls throughout the day, doing emails, whatever. And then you bring them in um, at a certain point and ask for feedback and have discussion at that point. But as I was saying that, I thought of another really good one for etiquette. Yeah. Um, This came up just a couple of months ago. I was working on a a TV commercial and it's, it would be the same if it was for stills and a tabletop scenario, but generally there will be at least one screen or monitor that a client or anyone on the team can look at what's happening um, as each shot pops up or video for placement, whatever it is. Sometimes there's multiple screens. In this case, there were probably four different screens Um, because it was a big video. And it's really important, no matter how much you want to look at it, to let the client have the best view of that screen. And I had an assistant with me on this particular shoot, and she definitely didn't mean anything by it. It's something that I don't think everyone would know, um, which is why I'm saying it now. Yeah. she was super excited about it. She was happy to be there, happy to be doing the work. And everyone had kind of scattered, you know, videos can take a really long time. So we were in a lull and then it was like, okay, we're going to be rolling again. And she was like right in front of the monitor. Like (laughs) her eyes were like big. She was excited. And I felt so bad. I like motioned to her and was like, come over here. And there was kind of like a separate monitor for the clients. Cause at that yeah. point there's an ad agency and then the actual client and yeah. they all kind of needed to be there discussing things. And then there was another one for the production team. And yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. The little tiny things that if you haven't worked on sets, you wouldn't know. And they're important. Oh, they're very important. Yeah. And like, you can't get miffed when 
the clients and the agencies are standing literally in the middle of the monitors, just staring like in like hero stance, just staring at them. And you're like, yeah. I think that looks okay. They'll tell you if it doesn't, <laughs> like, you know, like you just, but I agree with you when there's a, there's not always a holding area for the clients, but when there is, and then you're like, okay, Hey, can we're all set? Come on over, take a look. So That's nice. the ideal scenario. But yeah, I totally agree with you. So, um, prop trends, prop trends. What are some of the trends that like you're seeing right now? And where do you, where are you hoping some of them go? Hmm. You're in love with. Prop trends. Well, I don't know about props as much as like the overall look of photography. I think right now there's a lot of really harsh lighting going on, which, you know, I'm into that. I like it. Uh Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting how a couple of years ago, there was that phase of like really dark food photography. Yes. Super moody. Yeah. And I think we're out of that. And into <laughs> we're like this <laughs> Renaissance. I know we went from like the Monet painting of where it's like soft and airy to like the dark and moody. And now it's like, yeah. And like super high contrast and really hard lighting and totally that party big colors like lots of color and it's super fun um I don't think that will last forever um but nor will these photos age well like yeah like the harsh lighting too like you know really looking like sunbeams are coming into something um I like that and it definitely has its place but then you also still see a lot of the really white bright light and airy food photography yeah very blogger style Food yeah. blogging yeah and like, uh-huh. I like that look um I think from a commercial stylist standpoint I don't get to do that very often um because I don't know maybe it is more blogger um but yeah big bold colors handmade props I think are huge like people really love pottery plates right now oh yeah like east fork pottery fucking east fork like that huge they're having a huge moment in the last year yeah Yeah. and like years ago it was um farmhouse pottery and like they definitely still have their place as well but it's kind of moved from that rustic feel to you know this more chic thing going yeah all the colors we were talking about um yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm I'm hopeful that I like the I like where it is right now. I think some of the uh colors are are super fun, but I don't think like I said they're going to age very well. I also like that right now we're kind of making a mess a little bit and like yeah. the other thing we're doing is that it doesn't look super tweezered high precision style sets it's kind of like a lived in vibe a little bit too which I like um and it's a little more approachable for people like they can see a video or a still and they're like oh I can kind of see that is my own home like I can feel like it was a little lived in versus like that high commercial like every little sesame seed is placed perfectly like yeah and I think traditionally like what you're talking about would be more editorial and commercial is really pulling that idea in because yeah. 
they do want it to feel more like a lifestyle. Yeah. I think yeah. that is because of all the bloggers. Honestly, I think that's where that came from because those people were creating content in their homes and making it feel really attainable. And the big brands had to catch up with that. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, speaking of homes, before we get into these listener questions, what are your top styling tips either for on set or maybe like if you don't live on set like we do, maybe in your own home, you could apply a couple of them. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm constantly changing around what's going on on my shelves at yes, home. Sir. I have um, one that's kind of like a faux mantle and then bookshelves as well. I think you have to do what feels right for you in your own home. And it's funny, sometimes I'm sitting on my couch and I'm looking at everything and thinking like, I just have to leave it. Like I'm not at work, but my yeah. brain think of like 10 other ways that I want that to look. And then I'm like, sure. just, just stop. But for styling shelves, let's say, I like to think a lot about height. Like mm. when I'm looking at the mantle, um, I usually try to have a couple of tall things and then really like watch the flow of how your objects interact with each other and the height of them. That's really interesting. I love that. Are you a minimalist or a maximalist? Well, I think I fall somewhere in between. Mm. Um, there was a time when I was selling all, all that vintage kitchenware where I would have bookshelves that were just filled with vintage Pyrex instead of books. And that looked crazy. Um, so I've kind of dialed back my look at home. Um, it's definitely not minimalist. It's still a little bit eclectic, but yeah, I just can't handle all this stuff anymore because that is what I deal with all the time for work. Yeah. And, um, once I was like really in the world of prop styling, I realized that I needed a little more of a peaceful feeling at home. Yeah. Cause it can go from zero to a thousand probably real quick once you start pulling stuff and stacking stuff and then you all of a sudden it's almost like when you start cleaning a room and like say you get like those mr clean magic racers out and you start like cleaning a spot and you're like oh my god and you drill in and you then you see all the spots and next oh, thing you know god. you stop doing that and now you're you're vacuuming a floor and then you're doing this and then you're doing that and like your mind just starts going whereas when you get it to where you want it and you just kind of ignore it a little bit. And you're like, I'm not going to super hyper focus on this. I just am going to enjoy it until I no longer want to enjoy it. And then I will move on kind of vibe. Yeah. You walk into your prop room and I'm sure if it's not organized, you're like, I want to jump off a cliff right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of times when it's not organized and oh, then man. I just close the door and then I'm like, okay, now I'm in the rest of my house. But totally. uh, a styling tip more for prop stylists, I would say, or people mm -hmm. getting started. I think I would just recommend not being too critical of yourself. Really trust your own judgment because if you want to do any sort of work like this, um, it's it honestly is kind of arbitrary. You have to go by your own taste and who's to say that this is better than that or any of that. Trust yourself. 
play with different things on set, get it to a place where you like it. And then don't be hard on yourself if you want to completely scrap it. In general, I would say like really build out a scene, like almost overdo it. And then take yeah, and then take things out. like Coco Chanel, that shit, like take a few yes. things away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You could do it the opposite as well, but that's that'd be my tip. Kind of start big and then pull back. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, makeup wedges and that museum putty are your best friends without yes. question. Yeah. I, okay. I, think I always go by that putty. That tack would be like my number one styling. Absolutely. You can use it. I use it on food. I use it on, I mean, even just to get a plate to level, right. If the surface is a little wonky, I mean, you use that everywhere and yeah. it's reusable depending on what you tack to and on and all that good stuff. And it's not expensive. Um, all right. Some listener questions. All right. All right. Scott from Instagram writes, these are kind of longer listener questions. So let me, let me get this going. Scott from Instagram writes, I love going to antique stores and shopping for awesome finds. It feels like a lot of Wait, it feels like a lot of the stuff you eat is covered with grime, air quotes, aged or whatever you call it. Since I want to use these in my own kitchen to eat with or make cookies, etc., what's the best way to clean them so they're safe without ruining them? Awesome question. I think it really depends on what type of kitchenware you're buying. I have a lot of like really cool patina sheet pans and things like that, that I honestly wouldn't use for any type of food. Just keep those as a prop. But something like I mentioned vintage Pyrex earlier, please don't ever put it in your dishwasher. It's going to get a film on it that you might already see on it when you buy it. Um, it will totally ruin the finish if you put it in a dishwasher and you want it to have that really nice sheen. Mm. But if it's getting that really nasty kind of white film on it, or you buy it that way, because I, you know, when that stuff came out, nobody was thinking it's going to be collectible. They just right. throw it in the dishwasher and whatever. There's an amazing product called Barkeeper's Friend. I would invest money in this shit. It's been around forever. It's and yeah. it's safe. Oh my God. I love Barkeeper's Friend. Yes. Yeah, you can literally buy it at like Home Depot. And if you use that on Pyrex, it'll take that film off. Mm. And you can also use it on enamelware. You can use it on like a Le Creuset. It's mm -hmm. amazing stuff. But I will warn that if you are using it on any sort of like more antique type china, like just stay away because you're likely to take off whatever pattern is on that. Like it, it really is like hardworking. Um, the, I use the powder. Yeah. That's what I use. Mixed with water. I think they have like a pre-mixed one. I don't like it as much. No, the powder's um, where it's at. And it's like, for those who don't know what it is, it's similar to, and it's not the same, but it's similar to like Comet back in the day, like in the, um, uh, uh, papery type can with the, you know what I'm saying? And you shake, shake, yeah. shake, 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 shake your booty. But yeah, I agree with you. And it, it doesn't scratch the La Crusettes. It works. It gets all of that shit right off. Oh, it's oh it really does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Um, it also takes off 
utensil marks from Pyrex, which oh, is really like, so when I talk about the Pyrex, I'm really not talking about the glassware that you buy now. It's like a milky glass. Yeah. The outside had all different colors and patterns and certain patterns are more collectible than others. And I could go all day about that, but because they were often used, I mean, that was the point of them. Um, there's tons of metal utensil scratches and stuff in that white area. Barkeeper's friend takes that off too. It's wow. awesome. Amazing. Um, and then in general, I think this is like slightly off topic from that question, but I think it's really interesting the debate on whether to use or not to use vintage and antique kitchenware. Um, I personally think that you can have your your collection, but take some of those things that you really love into your kitchen and use them. Like these things were made to be used. And I think, you know, I would tend to anthropomorphize these objects a little bit, but I think that little bowl would be happy to be used. Yeah, I agree with you. I think live and be, yeah. Yeah, like like you said, the sheet pan, not happy to be used. Mm -mm. No, that's got like enough shit on it that you, um, mm -mm. no, pretty picture. It'd be a pretty picture, but like, mm -mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea it would take the scratches out of the monkey glass. Oh, good fun fact. Um, All right, Kathy in New Hampshire writes, I live in New England and we have some of the best antique stores around. Kathy, we totally agree with you. Um, I could spend every weekend hopping from one to the next with some brunching in between. You're my girl, Kathy. Where are your favorite spots to find treasures? Well, we already talked about Todd Farm, which is a big one for me. I've been going less often in the last few years because I'm trying to scale back. Yeah. And that's in, um, for people who don't know, Rowley. It is in Rowley, Rowley, Massachusetts. And Um, it's uh, seasonal. It's from. I think it starts this week, actually. Shut up. So like beginning of uh, April through probably November-ish, I would guess, unless the weather turns. Yeah. And for anyone that knows Brimfield, it's like a huge antique shop. Todd Farm is like a really scaled down version of that. But what's so cool about it is there are all types of vendors. Like some people are there with things that, you know, it looks like a yard sale. Other people have much more curated setups. And they also have like permanent buildings that are, you know, the items in there are going to be much more expensive. But you can really like pick through things there. Mm -hmm. And you Um, can haggle a little bit too with the price. Oh, yeah. And then for thrift stores, I do tend to hit the big box thrift stores like Savers and Goodwill, but they've annoyed me in the last few years because they kind of caught on and started jacking their prices up. Yeah. But like even beyond that, they're now picking through things. And so if they think something's going to be valuable, they take it and put it in this case. And then it really is more expensive. And it really takes the fun out of thrifting because part of it's like, what can you find? And like, Ooh, maybe I can flip this and sell it. And yeah. So I like to go to places like Todd farm or like mom and pop thrift stores are awesome. Mm -hmm. Or like a church thrift store. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff's great. There's like really an interesting hierarchy though. When you think about this, like buying and selling Todd farm would be like 
uh, like one of the bottom tiers in a good way where you can, I'd say Todd farm and yard sales, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can get things for a really good price and people who own vintage stores, antique stores, they are going to those places to find their inventory Mm -hmm. or people who like clean out houses. There's a name for that. When, like, um, not pickers, but like they're, um, state something, something not a state sales. I know what you're talking about though, but, yeah. 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 but yeah. sales are another place to get things at like the bottom level uh-huh. and then you can resell them, um, thrift stores as well. And then it just moves up all the way to like online vintage stores, antique stores. It's really interesting to think about like, where are all these people getting this stuff that they can turn a profit? They're right. Getting- at thrift stores and Todd farm hundred percent and yard sales. And like, depending on where you are in new England, um, if you're, for example, say vacationing in the vineyard or Nantucket and you walk into a vintage store in there, you're going to pay way more just because of the area you're in. than if you were in the middle of nowhere, Massachusetts in the middle of nowhere, Vermont or Maine, And even those, like some of those stores, they're obviously trying to make money. And I get that like as an entrepreneur myself, but like there's some things that just get jacked up so much because of the area of like vacationville kind of vibes. Um, Kind of like in Newburyport, there's a huge antique on that barn place that's right by the ocean. Yeah. And I've found a couple of things in there, but um, some of it's kind of expensive. Depending. Oh yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. And I have a really hard time buying anything from stores like that because I've been thrifting for so long Yeah, and have had different iterations of selling, which like we didn't really talk about, but I've done Instagram. I did the farmer's market. I had a like brick and mortar spot in a group shop. And so when I see something, I, I know how much they've jacked the price. And so, yeah, yeah, it has to be really special for me to buy it from a place like that. Like something I need in the moment or no, I totally. have to. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. I love this question. This may sound geeky, but I've always loved watching Antiques Roadshow on PBS. Oh, wait, hold on. Who's this from? Okay, wait, sorry. Julie from Instagram writes, this may sound geeky, but I've always loved watching Antiques Roadshow on PBS. My dream is to find that teapot that everyone thinks is just a teapot, but it's really a priceless artifact from some royal family in Europe. It's a million years old. And then I can sell it. I never have to work my crappy job again. That is the dream. Have you ever found anything worth serious money? And what are your tips digging for gold? Oh, Julie. Gallagher on hearts. I love it. I also watch Antiques Roadshow pretty regularly. I just saw an episode where there was like a $30,000 teapot. So that's like the Will and Grace episode. Oh Oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. Crazy. So yeah, keep looking for that. Um, I think, I don't think I've had any like huge finds. I think the biggest turnaround might be something like I had found these really specific 1950s plates. They're called Hazel Atlas pink crinoline plates. And I got them for like 25 cents per plate. And at the time, when I looked them up, 
they were selling for like a hundred dollars or something. Oh my God. That was an exciting one. Um, I mean, 25 cents for anything is exciting. That was like, that's unusual in itself. And then I still have those. I'm obsessed with them. They live on a shelf. They, they used to be on one of the bookshelves I mentioned, but now they're in the bathroom. Um, there've definitely been some other ones in the vintage Pyrex times of my life. I'd find something for a couple of dollars. And some of those pieces are over a hundred dollars for like one bowl. And I had a couple of those come through. Oh my God. Yeah. What's the best vintage Pyrex? Like what's the most coveted pattern? Oh my gosh. There's a bunch of different ones. There's like one with dots that's really hard to find Mm -hmm. one with um tulips although I think that's actually maybe a fire king piece um I'm really into the teal colored butter print pattern Mm. and also a pink gooseberry pattern and those continuously sell for high amounts even since you know almost 10 years ago when I started looking at them, other pieces, that market's kind of fallen off a little bit, but certain colors are still selling. So fascinating. All right. I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who wants to do a deep dive on some vintage Pyrex. Um, Okay. Jesse from Instagram writes, I've always wanted to be a stylist. I love everything about it, but I'm not sure how to get going in the field. Do you need to have a lot of props to get started? Where's the best place to buy them? How do you store everything? How do you find clients? What's your advice for someone who's interested in this career? Okay. That's a lot. We could do a whole episode. I think we've covered a lot of it already. Covered a lot of it. Uh, Hmm. Well, I I mean, what do you think about buying a lot of props? Well, yeah, I was actually just going to go back to that one. And you don't need to have a lot of props to get started. You absolutely don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe key pieces. It's taken me years to like dial in to knowing what pieces I will use over and over again. And maybe what will sit on my shelf because I love it, but it never is going to really work. Shoot. Um, And that's a huge thing. I would actually recommend not buying that much at the beginning because you just don't know what you're going to need. Um, I think in general, like I said, for how I got my start, just reaching out to people and having conversations is a really good way to try and get into the field. Asking to shadow or assist people, um, is awesome. Some people are really competitive about this and won't want anyone coming on. But I really don't have that mentality. I'm really into community over competition, which is a little phrase I love. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've had people come along with me to different shoots. It depends on the client, whether that's something that would fly or not. Um, But yeah, I've also taught workshops in the past and we really deep dive into how to get into the industry. So I'm happy to chat in depth with that about anyone. I think it's a pretty long answer if I were to tell it right now. Yeah. And I think another um, thing I agree, it's all about networking. And I think for someone who uh, is looking to get started, 
shadowing, jumping on, if somebody be willing to take on an, like a free apprentice for a hot minute, or um, if you do already have some experience, a lot of studios um, in the area have lists of who works, like if I'm on a handful of studios lists for photographers, I'm sure you are as a stylist, and it's just nice to get your name out there in that way. You want to build a website, build a portfolio, befriend a photographer. Maybe you know how to take pictures and start styling. Like you also said, like getting a job, um, if you're really, really green as um, someone in retail to design and help style window displays, that's a fucking awesome, awesome tip to start, you know? And I, I just... Jesse, we wish you the best of luck. There's plenty of room in this industry for everyone who wants to do it. I'm like you. I feel like there are more jobs and clients than we can even begin to fathom and that there's plenty of work to go around for us all and then some. And, you know, share the wealth, share the knowledge. You're here and you're good and you're passionate and a wonderful human. Join us. Join our tribe. I will, I'll add something that I, yeah. I should have said. I mean, I, I really am happy if anyone wants to reach out and email and talk about this. I love talking about it. But in addition to what you just said, testing with photographers, if you're a new stylist or want to be stylist is just amazing. And even people that are established in the industry do that. Um, and then you can have images to like actually build a portfolio. Even if you don't connect with a photographer, just do it on your iPhone. Like I literally only had iPhone photos when I first signed with an agency, which was kind of crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So it can happen. It's, it is hard though, because there's no like actual program for this. There's not like a certificate program somewhere or some no. degree. So everyone makes their own path. And it's really interesting to talk to different stylists and ask how they got started because nobody has the same story. No. And that's a good point. Are you, you're not still with the agency. I am not. I was only with that agency for a few months before I was hired full-time to style for Stonewall Kitchen. Um, And then when I left there to become a freelancer, I thought I really want to be fully freelance and I'll see how that goes. Maybe I'll end up having to sign with an agency, but knock on wood, I haven't. Yeah. I really like being fully autonomous. Ditto. Yeah. And uh, for people who don't know you, there are agencies out there that you can sign with or they will hunt you down and ask you if you want to join them. There's always a fee (laughs) for having an agent. Usually it varies, but on average, I would say it's probably what, 25%-ish, give or take. 20 And they should be bringing you clients. <laughs> um, they, that's the that's the goal. But anyway, um, okay. Johanna in New York writes, I love playing the high-low game. Okay, so for the high, what is your most prized prop possession? Say that four times, three times. Now, right? And for the low, what is there one prop that got away? Like maybe you wished you bought it and didn't for whatever reason, or maybe it broke. Interesting. Okay. I, I feel like I've talked about all of my answers for this, but I'm going to loop back to them because it wasn't pertaining to that particular question. I'm obsessed with linens. Um, so yeah, those are like, those would be in my high category. Those pink crinoline plates. I don't know what it is about them. They're probably not even worth anything anymore, but I 
love them. And I had one break when I was unloading them when I moved home from Charleston. Um, and that was like a horrible moment. I also had, I really love handmade pottery plates, which we talked about. I, the first time I've ever had something break on set was this past summer. It wasn't, the shoot hadn't even started yet. Someone helped me unload my vehicle and I store things in bins usually. And they like took the bin out of my car and plopped it down in the garage. Like, I don't know, like really must've just like kind of dropped it because we were doing things really quickly and a really nice plate broke. That was, that was a difficult one. And like for something that got away, I can't think of something that was at a shop but again, vintage Pyrex, my dad was like kind of into this with me as well. We were both searching for things. When he sold a property a number of years ago, he had a yard sale and he brought someone into the house to show them some other piece and not Pyrex, just like something to buy. And they were, they saw this Pyrex bowl that had been stored there because it was a really, really special one. And he ended up selling it to someone, which in general, I was like, what? But then he like sold it for like $5. And it was one of the like really like high item pieces. And I think he bought it for a dollar or something, which was so exciting at the time. And he just was so overwhelmed with like the yard sale and getting rid of stuff. He didn't even think about it. So that's one that got away. I haven't forgotten. Yeah. Son of a (laughs) good ones though. Those are good ones. Um, okay. Being a food centric podcast and we've talked about, uh, a lot of kitchen stuff that food goes on, but what are you making right now in your own home kitchen that you're excited about? Love that. Um, I am always into Indian food and Mexican food, but I just replenished my spice collection for making Indian food from scratch, which is something that I did a lot more in my early twenties. And I really am trying to get back into that right now. I made, um, a beef vindaloo, uh, scratch a couple of weeks ago. So yummy. Your own recipe or is it one that you love? Oh no, definitely not my own recipe. Um, from cookbooks. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'm in, I'm like salivating right now. We're recording and it's lunchtime and I'm like, I could go for some really good Indian food right now. Okay. How can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? Promote yourself. Oh yes. You can find me on Instagram at Boston prop stylist. My website is the same Boston prop stylist.com. I do have a little tiny prop shop on Instagram still, which is at the Boston prop shop. I'm hopefully going to be migrating that over to my website soon. And I'm also in the planning stages of hosting a workshop on prop styling. So that will probably happen in the next couple of months. So keep your eye out. If any of this piqued your interest, maybe you can come and chat with me. Yay. I love it. Okay. Last question. You had all the money in the world. Where are you going and what are you eating? Where am I going and what am I eating? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The first thing that came to my mind was that I would go to Paris, not even necessarily for the food, but my brother lives there and I have 
a little baby nephew. He's not a baby anymore. He's like 15 months old, but I am just dying to see him again. Um, I've only seen him twice in his life, which is sad. And so I would definitely go there because then I have all the food choices in the world. Oh, I love that. Yay. Yay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're a delight and a dream. So fun. Thank you, Beth. Yay. All right. Have a wonderful day, my friend. I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I adore you. I'm going to link all of her information in the show notes. So head on over to my website for everything, elizabethrfuller.com. If you have questions for the podcast, you know where to find me. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. And of course, tag me in all of your food adventures on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. You guys, thank you for listening. I love you. I adore you. Make some yummy food together this weekend. Lead with kindness and I'll see you soon. Bye.